Good morning, and uh, as folks are sitting down and getting comfortable, you can open your Bibles to the book of James, and while you're doing that, I've got to get one thing out of the way here. Uh, nothing is wrong with Pastor Steve. For those that were here last week, you know that he's taking his annual break. He always takes a few weeks away from preaching in the summer uh, just to focus on other things and just also to have some time to relax with his family. So don't panic. Um, but I guess I only feel it's fair to warn you I will be back next week. So you've been warned. Um, James chapter 1, what I'd like to do is uh, read through the first 18 verses of that chapter and then uh, pray and unfold the text together. So here's what James 1 says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything, from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits." Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures." And Father, as we open your word this morning, I just pray that your spirit would be here among us. God, would you pierce hearts and souls with the words of your scripture. God, get me out of the way so that people are not confused or discouraged by what I might say. But God, speak plainly to each of us and teach us from the wisdom that we find in these pages. We love you, Father. And we eagerly await what you will teach us about yourself and about your son. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I thought before we get started in the actual text, we'll just take a quick minute to um, introduce a few things that you might want to know about the book of James. This is a letter, much like Paul's letters. 
And I think that often it's helpful to know with a letter who's writing the letter and to whom is it written. Um, most of you probably know I'm an attorney by trade, and I see a lot of letters. Uh, in fact, I've seen letters in my day that have said things like this. I've never heard such outlandish gibberish from a lawyer in all my life. Now, it's very helpful to know who wrote that letter and to whom was it written. If it was written from an opposing attorney to me, I can assume, well, this is simply an inferior mind who does not grasp the breadth and depth of my sound reasoning. On the other hand, if this is authored by a judge, I'm very much hopeful that it was written to my opponent. And of course, if it was from one of my own clients to me, I can assume that I have just performed my services pro bono, and there will be no check arriving in the mail anytime soon. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's helpful with any letter to know who wrote it and to whom was it written. So, we can see actually at the top of our page in verse 1, who wrote this letter? A man called James. Now, there was a man called James that was among the 12 apostles of Jesus, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. This is probably not that James. Most historians agree that this was a different man, James, who lived at the same time. In fact, he was, most likely, the biological brother of Jesus himself. Well, I guess biological half-brother. Uh, as we know, Jesus was the first son of Joseph and Mary, but was divinely conceived. And Mary and Joseph went on to have other children. And so this would have been one of those children, the son of Joseph and Mary. We know something else from reading the gospel accounts. The brothers and sisters of Jesus, in fact, most of his family, did not accept that he was the Messiah when he started his earthly ministry. In fact, at one point, his brothers opposed him outright, trying to stop his teaching. We don't know specifically if James was among them, but it's a good chance that he probably was. Unfortunately, we don't know what the conversion looked like for any of the members of Jesus' immediate family. It might be nice, but I, I like to surmise that perhaps seeing your blood brother condemned to death, to die a horrible, suffering death on the cross, and then to see him standing before your very eyes, raised to life three days later, well, it would get my attention. But that's subjection on my part. Um, James would go on to become one of the key leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine what that would have been like as thousands of people are coming to Christ in this new gospel being proclaimed by the apostles. And interestingly enough, at one point, even the apostle Paul would come to Jerusalem and seek the wisdom of the elders of that church for a doctrinal question that was an issue in his ministry. And it was James who provided the foundation for the answer to that issue for Paul and his fellow missionaries. So, this is our author, a wise man, a respected teacher, an elder of the church, but a man who knew what it was to oppose Jesus himself, and yet to be miraculously changed when his eyes were opened by the word of truth. Now, to whom is he writing? 
Well, it says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, or in some of the translations, to those scattered among the nations. And this referred to a specific event in James' life. We know that as the gospel began, there in Jerusalem, after Jesus left this earth, the believers were being multiplied by thousands, and for various reasons, there were people who opposed this new message. And in the book of Acts, it tells us of a young man named Stephen who was stoned to death for teaching that Jesus was the only way to salvation. And at the end of that story, it says in Acts 8, 1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So here was James, having watched the church grow exponentially, suddenly faced with a great persecution, so violent and so pervasive that thousands and thousands of people fled, literally, for their lives. And so after a time, James sits down to write a letter of encouragement, greetings to those who've been scattered. So why here? Why did we decide, or I decide rather, to present this letter of James to you? Well, Historically, Bible scholars count this among a category of books. We know from what we've heard from Pastor Steve that wisdom pervades the book of Proverbs, and actually there's a collection of books, Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. They're typically referred to as the wisdom books of the Bible, and most people put James in that category as the only New Testament wisdom book of the Bible. And I thought it would be interesting, after we've spent some weeks under the teaching of Proverbs, just to look at what does this wisdom of Scripture mean, looking backward through the lens of the cross. Solomon wrote us looking forward to a Messiah that he did not fully understand because he was only looking forward to what God's promises would be without knowing exactly how they would be fulfilled. We know they were fulfilled in the gospel. And this word gospel is a word that's thrown about. I want to make sure you understand what I mean when I use that word. Because even Christians, well-meaning Christians, will use it in different ways. By looking at that Old Testament wisdom literature, we know that man's view of himself and God's view of man are not always the same thing. In fact, rarely so. God has a standard of righteousness that man cannot meet. When we are honest with ourselves, we know we have fallen short of perfection. The only way for God, who is holy, the only way for God to react to an imperfect creature is to destroy it, because God in His perfect justice cannot withstand imperfection. But the good news, that's what the word gospel means, good news. The good news comes in the form of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus who willingly died to offer his life in our place, in the place of sinful, that's imperfect man. And so the good news, this gospel message that a Savior came to offer his life in our place so that we could have his eternal life in exchange, that's the good news that forms the backdrop of this man James and his letter to those who believed 
that gospel message. Okay, so after a bit of a lengthy introduction, I want to dive in. We're going to try to get through all of these 18 verses together by God's grace. And so um, it's going to be a bit of a speedy flyover. And I would uh, suggest that we can start simply in verse 2. I've broken down, you can see if you want to follow an outline there in the, in the bulletin. I've kind of broken this into chunks. Verses 2 through 8, I've called godly wisdom is freely given. Verses 9 through 13, I've entitled godly wisdom is easily misunderstood. Uh, and verses 14 through 18, uh, gospel that is, wisdom is a priceless gift. And we'll try to unpack all of that. But let's start with Verses 2 through 4, shall we? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. May I suggest his letter starts off with a bang, a shot fired between the eyes. Put yourself in the place of these young believers. You're a Christian, that is, you're a new Christian, who's just heard this good news gospel message that you can be saved because of the act of this merciful Savior. And this message has caused you to be persecuted to the extent you have to leave your home, your job, your property, perhaps your family, and to flee. And in the midst of that flight, you receive a welcome letter from a godly man and perhaps a good friend. And you open the letter, and what does it say? Remember to be happy, especially when life is hard. Really? Do you know how hard that is? But that's what James is saying. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. How do those kinds of words bring encouragement? Well, because we know that when we face those trials... Our faith will be tested, and it is that testing that will produce steadfastness and ultimately perfection and completeness. And that is a promise worth holding on to, a promise that God will perfect and will complete, and that at the end of this process, we will lack nothing. And so James starts off with this promise Make no mistake, this is not a magic promise. Sometimes I'm afraid that we get a bit confused at what all of this acting in faith and promise is all about. There is no deep sleep that we fall into when we suddenly awake and now we're magic superhumans that we can stand everything that God would allow to be thrown at us. No, this is a promise that is fulfilled in time. However, if you need ammunition, God assures you you will receive it. For if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who will generously supply to all. Now, if you've paid attention at all to Proverbs in the last several weeks, you know this wisdom of which James speaks is a tremendous treasure. We know that this wisdom teaches us things. We know that this wisdom allows us to live in God's world. I like to talk about wisdom as God's blueprint for the world. 
You can read about that in Proverbs 8 if you want some inspiration for wise teaching. The entire universe was created by a divine plan, God's plan. He's our creator. There is nothing accidental or haphazard or second-guessed about his plan. Wisdom, understanding the way God designs the world to work, allows us a glimpse into his mindset, and it gives us understanding of the physical world, the spiritual world, how physics works, how emotions work, how relationships work. It gives us understanding about justice and morality. It gives us understanding about death and life and sin and mercy and all of these things that are part of God's design. I assure you, there are plenty of times I look at those lofty concepts and I don't get it. This is not a promise that is fulfilled in an instant. It is a promise that is fulfilled in time. And by going through these trials, God promises you will be given wisdom when you ask. And that wisdom will allow you to persevere. And that perseverance will strengthen your faith. And you can remain steadfast in your gospel foundation. So for those like me who don't often get it, we look at verses 6 through 8 who ex- and where God explains through James how to ask. Let us ask for wisdom in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Now, faith, and especially when we ask for things in faith, is a concept that I'm afraid is sometimes misunderstood. We may have a wrong view, as if faith is this force that we must well up within us. And if we conjure properly, God will mystically hand us exactly what we need. It is not faith. You can call it by a variety of names, but faith is trust. Will there be doubts? Yes. Look at the life of Peter. Peter gives us lots of great illustrations. If you just need something to study and you've run out of things, just start picking stories of the life of Peter because he's such an ordinary guy who does the same things that you and I would do in crisis situations, like run or like lash out. But look at the life of Peter as we see it in Matthew chapter 14. You don't have to turn there. I'll just run you through the story. It's the story of Peter and company in a boat at night on a lake as a storm is rising. And they look out and they see what appears at first to be a ghost, and then they discover it's Jesus himself walking step by step across the surface of the water. And they're aghast. How does one do this? And Peter, in bold faith, says, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, command me to come to you and I will come. And Peter steps out of the boat and stands on top of the water. And he takes a step or two. And it's amazing to be standing there. But what does the gospel tell us? Peter looks around. And he feels the gale force wind blow against him. And he sees the waves as they roll. 
and he begins to doubt. To misquote a phrase, one does not simply walk on water. Peter begins to sink. Jesus, of course, reaches his hand out and saves him. You of little faith, Jesus says, why did you doubt? And what happened to Peter's faith? Quite simply, it was overpowered by the things around him. He saw the waves. He felt the wind. But what does Scripture tell us about Peter's reaction, even as he's sinking into the water? What comes from his mouth are the words, Jesus, save me. And Jesus does. Lord, save me is the only response when fear and doubt creep in. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That strengthens our faith. We get distracted by the things around us that are beyond our control. And our faith may start to weaken. Will doubts come? Yes. Your flesh will see to that. Satan will see to that. Sometimes your friends and family will see to that. But when those doubts come, that's, that's not an opportunity for God to say, Ha! Little faith. See, I knew you would doubt. See if I give you anything. No. That's an opportunity. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Mark 9, 24. I believe. Help my unbelief. The words of a desperate father seeking healing for his child. But when we ask, we need to expect an answer. We're not to conjure up some artificial display to try to prove to God that we trust Him. We are simply to know that God is the ultimate source of all wisdom. And so when we don't understand, and when we can't get beyond what appears to be insurmountable obstacles in front of us. Lord, save me. And when this wisdom comes, what does it look like? How do we know? That's something we need to consider. And the wisdom books of the Bible help us to understand that. That's why the study of Proverbs is so valuable. But our second point tells us that this gospel wisdom is easily misunderstood. And so we need to be vigilant that we keep our eyes focused. Look at verses 9 through 11. Here is a part of this misunderstanding. Let the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, these are confusing verses to some. In fact, these verses have often been used out of context to defend wrong teachings about the book of James. So I want to spend just a few minutes, and I want to start with a couple of things that these verses are not saying. These verses are not saying that poverty is a saving virtue while wealth is a condemning vice. Now, Jesus did say that we who are wealthy will have a harder time with the gospel message. Yes, we. 
who are wealthy. The reality is that everyone in this room would be considered wealthy in the measure of biblical poverty and wealth. If you have more than three shirts, and if you have more than two options to, to pick from for your lunch this morning or this afternoon, you are wealthy. So, we who are wealthy need to understand what is this danger of wealth? The danger of wealth is idolatry. Whenever we trust in wealth or power or position or anything other than God, we have created an idol that must be destroyed. We can make an idol out of poverty just as we can make an idol out of wealth. And James is not saying that we must live in poverty in order to please God. We must live in dependence in order to please God. Now, wealth can be an obstacle. Poverty can be an obstacle. Anything can be an obstacle to that dependence. But if we are not living in dependence, we are in danger because we are outside of God's will. These verses, 9 through 11, tell us that we need to understand God's economy when it comes to this idea of wealth and poverty. Keep in mind who we're talking about. Who is our letter to? Those who were facing great trials, being persecuted for their faith. And what is necessary for them to persevere? Faith and wisdom. What is not necessary? Money, prestige, a good house, a nice car, any car, a better job, a few dollars, any of the trophies of this world. Those are not necessary. James says, no. In the economy of God, faith is necessary. And that's what we must understand. Keep in mind what Pastor Steve taught us about godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. It's easy for us to see the fruits of worldly wisdom. We look around and we see those that have what sometimes we want. But that's not God's wisdom. That's the world's wisdom. And the world's wisdom produces things like money and power at times, but those are temporary things. Those things don't give us the steadfastness that verses 3 and 4 talked about. They don't give us the endurance to persevere. Consider the poor and lowly. Consider those who have learned that there is nothing in this world that will substitute for faith. When you are in a trial, when you're in a point where you just don't know where to turn, God says, one of the things you can do is seek good counsel. Where do you go? Do you go to those who are worldly wise and have much success in the eyes of this culture? They give wrong answers. Do you go to those who may be poor in the world's eyes, but who are rich because they've learned what it means to be content and they've learned what it means to survive trials. That's where we seek our wisdom. Go to those who know what it means to fear the Lord. And I assure you, if you are like me and you occasionally put far too much trust in the resources of this world, God will show you. The grass will wither. The flower will fall. God will take away the riches of this world when necessary, if that's what's necessary to teach you. 
Consider it joy, brothers and sisters. It's a trial. Do you consider yourself poor? Then boast in the lofty position that God has given to you. You can learn, like all of us, in your poverty that it is God's wisdom and not man's that delivers. Trust not in the wisdom of the culture. Trust in the only one who can save both body and soul. And what a glorious, glorious prize awaits us. Verse 12 tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, just to decide, how many of you have verse 12 sort of set apart in its own paragraph in the translation that you're reading? Several. Good. Okay. How many have verse 12 hooked up to verse 13 in that paragraph? Another several. Good. How many of you know what a tweet and an emoticon are, but a paragraph is a foreign concept? <laughs> ah, well, okay. <clears throat> For the latter group, uh, you will be pleased to know that in Greek, there aren't paragraphs. So if you're not sure where you're going with your education, perhaps ancient Greek with lack of paragraph and punctuation would be helpful. <laughs> Sorry, that's complete tangent. Okay, back to the text. Um, look at verse 12 and the promise that's given to us. It's the difference between trusting in the things of this world and the things in heaven. We will receive a, a promised prize, a crown, and not just any crown, but the crown of life itself. And eternal life is far greater than anything this world can offer. We need to focus on kingdom heaven, not planet earth. But there is a reward here. Don't misunderstand. Don't be deceived to think, oh, well, someday, eventually, but for now, I just suffer and grope along as best I can. No, the reward was at the beginning of the letter. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's a reward. That steadfastness allows us to persevere. That's a reward. And God grants wisdom. That's a reward. So, don't misunderstand what our gospel message is about. Don't be deceived into substituting worldly wisdom for godly wisdom. And don't be deceived by this American dream, which is the false hope of what this world offers. Look to the prize that God offers. And as you look to that prize, know that this wisdom that's offered is a priceless gift. Our final point talks about the incomparable value of what we are to receive. When we understand this economy of God, this wealth and poverty from His perspective, we understand how priceless wisdom is. Look at verse 13 and following. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you remember the story of Job? Job was an interesting fellow. The story opens with a very unusual scenario. Satan before the throne of God. 
And Satan points out how Job appears to be an upright man, but God, if you smite him, if you take away what he has, if you allow him to be tortured for his faith, so to speak, he will curse you. And God says, ha, let me show you how far I can tempt Job. No, that's not what God says. Job, Job will stand the test, but God says to Satan, have at it. God does not participate in the temptation. God is not sinful. God cannot stand sin. God is not tempted. God never sits in his throne room and goes, you know, I could just wipe them off and they'd never know that I never fulfilled my promise. And uh, no. God is consistent from beginning to end. When God at the beginning of time promises that there will be a remnant saved, there will be a remnant saved. He's not tempted to ignore his own promise. And he's not tempted by anything that tempts us. James says, don't be deceived into thinking that God is the one responsible for your angry response to your children. God is neither the one who makes me angry, nor is he the one who makes me too proud to go to them and humbly ask their forgiveness. God is not the one who sends the woman across my path to see if I'll lust as I watch her across the street. God is not the one who says, you know, if you just kept that extra check that your partners don't know arrived, you could pay that bill that came in the mail and it wouldn't hurt them in the least. God sends none of those things. We are tempted to say God is testing me in a way that it's not fair. God does not tempt. In him there is no darkness. I want to press this point just a little bit with an illustration. It's a childhood memory. I think I was probably about 14 or 15, if that's childhood. Close enough. Um, if any of you have ever played Capture the Flag, you know that it's best done in darkness. I was at a summer camp, and there were several dozen of us. We played Capture the Flag. There were two things that made Capture the Flag particularly difficult that night. A full moon and a bright floodlight in one corner of the field. Okay, some of you have played this game. Some of you don't get it yet. All right, capture the flag works like this. You've got a big field. You divide it in half. And the teams, there's one team on one side, one team on the other side. Okay? Each team has a flag. They hide it from the other team in their own territory. Then the, the, the goal is for you to sneak across enemy lines into the other team's territory, find their flag, grab it, and run back to your own side before you get caught. But, of course, they can catch you. If they tag you on their side of the field, then you go to jail or something like that. So, capture the flag is best done when things can't be seen. Well, we were playing one night, and I somehow sort of stumbled across this thing at the edge of the field where we were playing. It was sort of a little swale, kind of a ditch. And I realized that the way that the floodlight came across the swale, there was a dark shadow in the bottom. And it was next to this row of pine trees so that the moon was blocked. So I just sort of nonchalantly laid down in the swale. And you couldn't see me because of the shadow. So I began to army crawl across the field on this swale. And I, I got into enemy territory and nobody knew it. 
And people would kind of get close, but literally they couldn't see the bottom. It was black. And I, I crawled all the way to the back, and I saw where their flag was. And I knew if I could just get as close as I could in the dark, I could jump up and grab it. Now, if you know how to play the game, what do you do at the back of the field where the flag is? You post a guard. And sure enough, just as I'm about ready to get up, I notice there's a sentry coming. And he's walking right at me. What am I going to do? He literally got to the point where he was almost going to step into the little trench where I was at. And he hadn't seen me, and I didn't know what else to do. So I jumped to my feet, leaned forward into his face, and just yelled, guy was completely stunned. I materialized out of total blackness, giving him my best war cry, and he just stood there. So I ran around him, I grabbed the flag, and sprinted for home. Okay, you Paul Harvey fans. <laughs> you probably uh, have realized I'm not an Olympic athlete. So the rest of the story is that halfway back to my side, I tripped because I was trying to run so fast, tumbled into a heap, dropped the flag, half the other team piled on top of me. It was not a pretty sight, but that's not the point. The point is there was darkness in that field, and the darkness was magnified by the fact that there was this light everywhere. Now, we have a tendency in the way that we think about this to think that when we turn on a light, it makes shadows. Well, not really. We turn on a light, it makes light. You can't make darkness. Now, if something blocks the light, there's darkness there. But the light didn't create the darkness. The light just creates light wherever it can. And if there's darkness to be found, it's not because you turned on a light. Before you turned on the light, it was just dark everywhere. When you turn on the light, it's light in some places. Do you see what I mean? God's like that. God is the, is the father of lights. In him, there is no darkness at all. Our hearts are dark. They're dark by sin and, and desire. Verse 14 tells us this. Each of us is lured and enticed by our own desires. And when we indulge those desires, we conceive sin. And the wages of sin is death. When we come to Christ by faith, he gives us a new heart, and the light of the gospel shines in our hearts. But we're not yet made perfect. Now, by God's grace, sometimes he'll shine that light into the darker areas of our heart. And he'll show us, you've still got shadows. And we'll say, God, why did you put darkness here? He didn't. God's the light. God shows us where the dark places are. But he didn't put the darkness there. When God shines his light on the darkness of our desires, don't be tempted to blame him for knowing that that darkness is there. James reminds us that God is not the source of our temptation. And when we're in the midst of trial, there is a lot of temptation. Don't be deceived. God is the source of all good things. 
Verse 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The Father of lights gives us all good things. Consider the power of this verse 18. He brought us forth by his word. And James is writing to these that he calls the first fruits. We don't use that word. If you want an interesting study, go study that word in the scriptures. It's, it's amazing. First fruits, it's the best of our labors. It's the farmer's first crop. It's his best and, and most perfect livestock. It's our first wages. It's our first children. It's, it's whatever is most valuable that we can offer. Scripture calls us to set aside these things for sanctification, for God's purpose. And here James says, these have been set aside for God's purpose as a symbol of the promise that is to all. These are a fitting conclusion for us. These verses are a great promise. They are full of good news because God shows us these first fruits. God shows us the power of this gospel promise. And by doing so, he reminds us where we draw our strength in the time of trial. You see, if we somehow got to where we are today, totally by the power of our own doing, and I'm talking about spiritually, if you got to this point spiritually because of what you've done, then your position before God is as tenuous as your ability to sustain it. I would suggest that's a frightening thought. How good are you really? But do you see what James says? We are not brought forth by the power of what we do. We're brought forth by the power of God's word. He brings forth with truth. And if you understand that, if you understand his promise that he not only brings you forth, but what he starts, he will complete, then no trial is too powerful for you to remain steadfast in faith. Not because you know that the world provides answers, but because you know that God will give you wisdom. And the source of that wisdom is the same source of the faith you initially received in Christ. God produces faith. That faith saves us. God gives us the faith to approach him to ask for wisdom. That wisdom allows us to remain steadfast. Why? Because God does not change. Not because we do not change. He gives us good gifts. Those good gifts include these faith and wisdom. And when we trust solely in that, we will persevere. Trust God. Remain steadfast. And when the trials come, rejoice and consider it joy because God preserves you. Father, this is a lot to swallow. And God, I have to confess that for a long time I was afraid of these verses. I don't want to go through trials. God, I would pray for my brothers and sisters here and for me as well that you would show us how to take joy in the trials that come. 
that you would give us the faith that we need to approach your throne of grace and that you would answer our call for wisdom. And God, above all else, let us say that we believe and when we doubt that you will strengthen our unbelief. Father, in all this, glorify yourself so that when people see us persevere in trial, they will see Christ in us. We lift him up to you and thank you for the good news of your great word. Amen.